0: Good morning. morning. I'm Michael Flake, one of the pastors here. Great to be together this morning as a church family, both online and in the Y. So fun to worship together. Whether you are cautious about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus, there is room for you here. This is a safe place to learn, to grow, and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. The round reminds us that our spiritual growth is not just for our own benefit. We're all here to receive something this morning, but we also all have something to give. So as we soak in the grace and truth of God's love, we can also spread that love to one more person. Now, if you've been around for any period of time, then you've probably heard us talk at some point about what the ancient Irish Christians would have called a soul friend, what a group of modern Christians are calling spiritual friends, what sometimes we might even call a 3 a.m. friend. These are the friends you have or I have that are closer than family. The friends that encourage us to grow in our faith. The ones who know how far we've come and how far we have yet to go. And if everything in our lives that we know were to come crashing down, they'd be the person we would call at 3 a.m. This morning, we want to look at how God gifts us with these kind of friendships, even in the most unexpected of ways. In fact, this morning we're looking at a passage in the Bible where a woman becomes a 3 a.m. friend with her mother-in-law. Another miracle in the Bible. There are physical miracles, there are relational miracles. Whatever life might bring our way in the ups and the downs, who will be with us in those moments? Who will be with us in the ups and downs of life? When life is hard, maybe even when life embitters us, who will be with us? Well, certainly God will be with us, but whose hand will be on our shoulder to remind us of that? Whose embrace will remind us of God's embrace? What soul friendships, what spiritual friendships, what 3 a.m. friendships is God cultivating in our lives? That's sort of the question we want to ask today as we continue in our year-long series of sermons called The Story with a capital S. We're going through the big picture of the Bible. And we have resources to help you with that to make the Bible a little less big, a little less intimidating. They come out in our weekly emails. You can also find them there at lakeforest.org. LFCD the story. One of the resources is videos through a group called Bible Project. They're videos that summarize a book of the Bible in about 10 minutes. And so as we start to pick up the pace on moving through the Bible, you might find that a really helpful resource. If you're new to the Bible or if you, you know, have been around the Bible for a while but just don't always remember what all the books are exactly about. And so you give it about 10 minutes and it's a big picture of a book. It can be really helpful. This morning, we are closing out The Story with a capital S, The Story, Volume 3. Volume 3. Next week, we will start Volume 4. Excellent. You've been paying attention. There are eight volumes in total. Jesus is Volume 6. So we are moving along through the story God is writing through the Scriptures. In Volume 3, what have we seen happen? We've seen God's people arrive at the promised land. That is the land that God had promised to give them. This is a place they can call home, they can put down roots, they can be a shining light of hope to the world. Now there are other people in the Promised Land and these people have been known for their moral corruption, they've been known for things like child sacrifice. God has told His people to stay away from all that and to remember their covenant that He will be their God and they will be His people. This brings us to Ruth. Ruth is a person and Ruth is a book of the Bible. And Ruth begins this way. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judea, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. So this book happens in the days when the judges ruled, in the days, some translations say, when the judges judged. Haters going to hate, judges going to judge. But who are the judges? Now don't think like Judge Judy the the judges were military leaders they were military leaders who bridged a leadership gap for about 300 years so you have moses moses gives way to joshua and then you have the judges for about 300 years there's actually a whole book of the bible about the judges it is by and large a very tragic book Because what happened was after Joshua died, God's people started to adopt the customs of the other people in the Promised Land. And they'd start to worship other gods. They would indulge themselves in moral corruption. And how they treated the poor in their sexual lives. They would indulge in moral corruption. They started to become indistinguishable from the other people in the promised land. They would eventually become brokenhearted about this. They would repent. They would return to God and God's steadfast love for them. And then God would raise up a judge to deliver the people back to a time of prosperity. This happened again and again and again. If you're familiar with the Bible, then some of the judges you might know are people like Gideon, Deborah, Samson, this is where those sort of names fit into the Bible, they were some of the judges. The judges had a lot of professional success and a lot of personal failings, especially as those 300 years went on. By the end of that 300 years, you were getting judges who hardly knew God, hardly knew anything about God. It became a very dark time for the Israelite people. And in that dark time, we learn that the family leaves the promised land to go live in the country of Moab. Verse 2, the man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, the names of their two sons were Milan and Kilian, or however Kate pronounced all those words earlier. I would trust Kate's pronunciations over mine. Verse 3, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Milan and Killian also died. And so what once looked like an open door now looks like a dead end. Because Naomi's husband and her sons die in Moab. They leave her as a grieving wife and mother alongside two grieving daughter-in-laws. So Naomi decides she's going to return home. She's going to return home to the promised land. She pleads with her daughters-in-law to stay in Moab. This is their home. There are plenty of good Moabite boys who can give them a picture-perfect life. And she cannot do that anymore. Naomi cannot do that for them. So at this, verse 14, at this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. So Orpah decides to stay in Moab. She weeps with Naomi. She kisses Naomi goodbye. And then she walks away to figure out what the next chapter of her life is going to look like. Archaeological evidence suggests that she founded a Moab media empire. But Ruth did not go got to think about that for a minute. And actually, you can check me on this. I believe Oprah's given name was Orpah. I think this is true. And so many people misspelled it and mispronounced it. She switched the two letters. You can double check me on that, but I think that's true. I know a lot about the Bible, folks, you know? Like how people change their names. We'll see if that joke goes over better at eleven. I thought that was a pretty good joke of Moab Media Empire. But Ruth does not go. Ruth is committed to staying with Naomi, and Naomi resists this. Naomi tells Ruth, return to your people, return to your gods. That kind of gives us a sense of where God's people are at this point. Right there's no sense of wanting people to come and learn about their God with the capital G. What's the big deal about our God? Just go back to your gods. That may also give us a sense of where Naomi is at in all this. After all she lost in Moab, maybe she's not sure what she thinks about God. What's the big deal about my God? Go back to your gods. Have you ever been there? Maybe you're there today. If you're ever there, you have a friend in Naomi. Naomi and Ruth do return to the promised land, and when they get to the promised land, this is what Naomi tells the people. She says, don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Naomi. And as footnotes will tell you, Naomi means pleasant, so why call me Naomi? Why call me pleasant? And Mara means bitter. Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Life has embittered me. God has embittered me. I went to Moab with a full life, and I'm returning home empty-handed. I have nothing except Ruth the Moabite. No offense, Ruth. I have Nothing. I was recently speaking with one of the elders in our church about change, about how much change has happened in our church during the pandemic, that we have new people, we have a new place, we have new technology we're working on a new name and a new logo, we're starting work on a new building. That can be a lot of change as the vaccine starts to become more widely distributed and people come back to in-person worship in larger numbers in the months ahead. Won't all that change be so jarring? This is what I was telling the elder. This is one of our older elders. He listens to me, he's kind to do that, and then he will always point me in a better direction. And on this one, this is the direction he pointed. He said, "I that is a lot of change, but I think we'd be better a better use of our time would be to think about how people will be coming back different. Not how the church or congregation may feel different, but how each of us will be returning different. People aren't coming back to a different church, but we are coming back as different people. The point being that for over a year, We've been fixated on the fragility of life. For over a year we've been fixated on the reality of death. We've been fixated on the reality that our lives are not fully in our own control. I I read a, a, a study recently, I believe it was in the New York Times, that said that reporting, like news reporting in the last year in the US has been eighty seven percent negative. And of all the countries studied in the study, that was by far the outlier of percent negative. And what some of that is going to do is have some of us emerge from this time thinking, if only I could build a better bubble around my life, then my life would be fulfilled. And some of us may emerge from this time embittered. Embittered by what we've experienced or by what others have done or not done, embittered by losing people we love. And some of us will emerge from those very same experiences, keenly aware that life has big questions and there is a big need at the core of our existence. And all of this needs God-sized answers and God-sized fulfillment. But the elder's point was we will all emerge from this time different. And so whether you like the name Lake Forest or Story Hill, whether you want a building that could be mistaken for the Sistine Chapel or the Latrine Chapel, that's all really interesting. But our point as a congregation is what he was saying, is that we will all emerge from this last year different. And there is part of us, there is part of each of us, that wants to, be, to emerge embittered. That wants to be called Mara. That wants to bemoan that half of our neighbors lack empathy and the other half lack willpower. That we have lost, and we have lost. We've lost opportunities, we've lost dreams, we've lost people we love. Some of us may have even lost the light of a hopeful future. There are reasons to be embittered. I'm not trying to make light of all of that. But to change our name to Mara is a choice. And in fact, it wasn't a choice that stuck very long with Naomi either. Like by the end of the book, she's called Naomi again. And she's, she's not just pleasant, she's celebrating. Right? People are celebrating with her. She she is joyful as she holds a little child in her hands. the, The book of Ruth will make you ask this question, what happened to Naomi? And the answer is, Ruth the Moabite happened to Naomi. This is Ruth's answer when Naomi tells her to stay in Moab. This is what Ruth says. Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Ruth is a godsend for Naomi. Literally, God sent her, God sent Ruth the Moabite to Naomi's life so that she did not have to walk through grief alone. And in fact, it's Ruth, Ruth's commitment to God comes out of her desire to love Naomi well. So we might also say that Naomi was a godsend to Ruth, that God sent Naomi into Ruth's life to help Ruth connect with him. So there are three main themes I want to point out in the book of Ruth, the the life of Ruth. These are three major themes that at this point in the Bible, this is the eighth book of the Bible, at this point in the Bible, they are so common they need to be called out. And so we're going to call them out in the book of Ruth. Here we go. Number one, number one, number, number, number. Number one, themes from the book of Ruth, number one, God's plan presses forward. God's plan presses forward. Ruth chapter four says this, Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. So throughout the Bible and throughout our lives today, what we see is that there's a strong and a steady hand guiding our lives forward. Now, this doesn't mean that God causes everything. God did not, for example, cause Naomi's husband and sons to die, but God did redeem it. God's plan continues to press forward. Even when our suffering, even when our, maybe, our embitteredness makes that hard to see, God's plan presses forward. This was true for Ruth and Naomi because they returned to the promised land grieving. They returned in need. They are widows, and in that time, widows had very few ways to provide for themselves And one of their best bets was something called gleaning. Gleaning meant picking the food in the field that nobody else had picked. And in fact, if you remember the early books of the Bible, God required that the fields not be picked all. You pick to the edges, but leave the edges so that those who are poor can glean from the edges. Gleaning. That's in the book of Exodus, right after the Ten Commandments. So That's Ruth's shop. Ruth goes out to do some gleaning. And while she's out there doing some gleaning, she meets this strapping Israelite uh, Israelite lad named Boaz. Emphasis on Bo. And uh, Boaz knows about Ruth. He heard about the commitment that Ruth had made to Naomi. And Boaz was a little smitten with her because of what that revealed about her character. So I'm gonna say long story, very short. We need to do a series on the book of Ruth one day. But long story, very short. Ruth and Boaz get married and they have a son named Obed. And the joy that fills Naomi's heart when she holds little baby Obed in her hands. She, she couldn't have seen that moment coming. When she called herself Mara, she could not have seen that moment coming. But God's strong and steady hand keeps guiding her story, our story, forward. As a follower of Jesus, or if today or in the future you become a follower of Jesus, we have to ask ourselves the question do we have a hopeful future? Do you have a hopeful future? Even if right now you want to rename yourself Mara, is the future bright? Is God at work? Is God up to something? The book of Ruth and the Bible in general shows us that God's plan presses forward. And sometimes it presses forward through human action and sometimes it presses forward in spite of human action or incidental to human action. You and I must decide whether we will hand God our plans and ask for his sign-off. God, here's my picture-perfect life. Will you sign off on it? Will we hand God our plans and ask for his sign-off, or will we hand God our life and submit to his plan? Will we hand God our plans and ask for his sign-off, or do we hand God our life and join in with his plan? Even if his vision is different than our vision of what life should be, Or maybe he's gonna get us to the same destination but by a really different route. Naomi had always wanted to be a grandmother and she became a grandmother, but not in the way she thought she would. God got her to the same destination by a really different route. That's number one, God's plan presses forward. Number two, is that God's love extends to outsiders and those on the margins. God's love extends to outsiders, quote-unquote, and those on the margins. The main channel of the Bible is God's covenant, God's eternal promise with Abraham and Sarah. God's eternal promise to bless the people of every family through their family. So because that's the main channel, you would start to think, well, okay, so either you're in the family, you're in the Israelite people, and so you're in with God, or you're outside the family, and you're on the outs with God. When you actually read the Bible, it's not that easy. God has a deep love for the outsiders. God has a deep love for those on the margins. One of the clearest examples of this is Ruth the Moabite. Not Ruth the Israelite, Ruth the Moabite. She's a woman in a patriarchal world, so she would not have been esteemed very highly. She's a Moabite. That might have made some of Abraham and Sarah's descendants view her skeptically. If God's at the center, Ruth's way out on the margins. But here's what God does God walks out to the margins, picks up Ruth, affirms how precious she is to him and then plops her smack dab, this is a technical theological term, plops her smack dab in the middle of what he's doing in this world. In fact, Ruth, the outsider, is far more eager to know and love God than the insider Naomi is. It's her enthusiasm, her eagerness that rubs off on Naomi. So if you feel on the outside of God's family, if you feel marginal to what God is doing in this world, I want you to remember three words from today. Ruth the Moabite. God still walks out to the margins and picks people up and affirms how precious you are to him and then plops you smack dab, a technical theological term, plops you smack dab into the middle of what he is doing in this world. God has a good and redemptive purpose for your life. A good and redemptive purpose for your life, some of which may well be to challenge and to energize those of us who have been insiders for a little too long. Now, if you have a deep heart for those who live on the margins, if you have a deep heart for those who have been labeled outsiders, maybe this gives you an insight into where that passion comes from. That's not a passing fancy. It is a holy passion given to you by God. The the God who loves those who are on the margins, the God who loves those who don't seem to fit well into His established family, The first book of the Bible named after a person is Joshua, the sixth book of the Bible, a leader of God's people. That makes a lot of sense. The second book of the Bible named after a person is Ruth, an outsider. How deeply God loves people on the margins. How deeply God loves you if you feel like there's no room in his family for you. That's number two. So, some of y'all, that's all you need to remember from the sermon. Ruth the Moabite. In case you're looking for one other thing to remember. Number three, God reminds us of his character through other people. The third thing we see in the book of Ruth is that God reminds us of his character through other people. Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Even in the dark time of the judges, God's light shines through. One of the ways God's light shines through is through the lives of other people. Now look, no one person can show us the fullness of God's character. I take that back. Jesus the Christ, as fully God and fully human, can show us the fullness of God's character. But outside of Jesus, no one person can show us the fullness of God's character. And yet, God still uses other people to remind us of aspects of His character, aspects of who God is. For example, Joshua reminds us of God's strength, of God's courage. And now Ruth reminds us of God's steadfast love. God's steadfast love. That's what Ruth pledges to Naomi, steadfast love. Love that will not let her go. Love that will never forsake her. Where you go, I'll be there too. Even when it costs me something. Where you go, I'll be there too even if I have to give up my picture-perfect life for it. Where you go, I'll go, even when it costs me something. Does this sound familiar? It sounds like God's everlasting covenant. His promise to you and to me to love us steadfastly, the sort of steadfast love He has for each of us, to not leave us, to not forsake us, even when it costs Him everything to not leave us or forsake us. That's the kind of love love that God has for you. And He invites you and me to come and be made new in His eternal embrace, to quit trying to earn His favor and to instead marinate in His steadfast love. Quit trying to earn His favor and instead marinate in His steadfast love. And God sends people into our lives to remind us of that steadfast love to give us a small sample of God's steadfast love. That's what Ruth was for Naomi, a reminder, even in her bitterness, a reminder that God would not leave her, God would not forsake her. And over time, Naomi marinated more and more in that steadfast love of God, shown to her through the life of Ruth the Moabite, made most tangible through the life of Ruth the Moabite. Naomi marinated in God's steadfast love. And day by day, her bitterness gave way to worship. Her bitterness gave way even to joy. Which makes me return to my earlier question. What 3 a.m. friendships has God given or potentially given to you. What soul friendships, what spiritual friendships, what 3 a.m. friendships, what friendships that are closer than family, what friendship, 3 a.m. friendships has God given or potentially given to you? These sort of people in our lives are God's sins, literally. They are sent from God to remind us of his steadfast love for you. A steadfast love made most evident in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus the Christ, the descendant of Abraham and Sarah, through whom all outsiders are invited into God's family, the one who would bring enough hope to light up every dark. These folks are a godsend, a, a reminder of God's steadfast love, of making tangible of God's steadfast love, who are those people in your life? And what I would say is, thank God for them. As an act of worship, thank God for them. Invest in those friendships. Pour into those friendships as an act of worship. Be that sort of friend to those people in return as an an act of worship. Now, your takeaway from all this may be, I don't have anything like that in my life. So where do you start there? If you got nothing like this, or maybe just the very potential beginnings of this, where do you start? I might encourage you to start by making this a regular matter of prayer between you and God. That in the same way Naomi did not quite conjure up Ruth, but God brought her into her life, that you'd start that as a a place of prayer for you, a regular talking to God, that God would would bring someone like this into your life. I'd also pray for wisdom, for discernment, to notice the potentials for these kind of friendships, 3 a.m. friendships in your life. And as you begin to sense there could be even the potential of that, begin to pour into that relationship as an act of worship and begin to be that kind of friend to that person as an act of worship and see what God might do with it. Just take little steps in that direction and see what God might do with it. You can be the Ruth to some Naomi you can remind a person of God's steadfast love for them, to not leave them, to not forsake them, even when it seems like everybody else has. God's plan pushes forward. And you are invited to come in from the margins into His open arms and to become a minister of His steadfast love to the people of this world and to do it all In Jesus' name. Let's pray together. Let me give you a chance to pray, to talk to God, to listen to God about whatever he's stirring up in your heart or in your mind. Just take a quiet moment for personal prayer. Lord, I thank you for your steadfast love that pushes your world and each of our stories forward redemptively, sometimes, oftentimes, even in spite of us. Lord, I thank you for your steadfast love for those who feel outside, for those who feel marginal. And I thank you that you've put that holy passion in some of our lives too. Lord, I thank you for your steadfast love in bringing people into our lives like Ruth who remind us that you don't leave, you don't forsake. And so, Lord, I pray that today we will again, maybe for the first time, open up our lives not to earning your favor, but to being overcome by your steadfast love. Lord, that we will live lives of marinating in that love, that as we follow the crucified and resurrected Jesus, we will be reminded daily of your steadfast love. And Lord, use us to be ministers of that love to others. Thank you for the 3 a.m. friends you have put in our lives. Thank you in faith for the ones you will put in our lives in the years to come. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship together.